0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Julie Gottlieb about her book, Guilty Women, Foreign Policy and Appeasement in Interwar Britain. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you
1: very much, Mark.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Um, I'm a historian at uh, the University of Sheffield. My background um, is I uh, taught. For, I'm originally from Canada, and I did my first degree at McGill. And then I came to Britain to do my postgraduate uh, research. Um, and after that, I taught at Manchester and then Bristol before uh, arriving at Sheffield in 2003. Uh, and the work that I've done has been uh, there's been a, a certain strand and a leitmotif through most of my research. And that's looking about at the interaction uh, between gender and politics uh, in modern Britain and looking at some aspects of that that are, the, uh, 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 that are aspects that are not uh, necessarily the most uh, covered uh, and, and, and fully explored and excavated. Um, stories.
0: And that's one of the things that stands out in your book, which is you're, in effect, doing an excavation of a history that has always been there, but has been so often overlooked by commentators, uh, has oftentimes been kind of subsumed into this broader story of appeasement. And I was wondering, what was it that led you to focus upon this particular topic about the role of women in the appeasement debates of the 1930s.
1: Well, thank you. So, I mean, I think it, it would be helpful to kind of give you a, a kind of history of my own history and the, the history of, of my my you know my journey um, and how I got to guilty women. So I started my, my first uh, major research project and my first book was about women in Br- the British Union of Fascists. So that book was called Feminine Fascism and came out, well, quite a few years ago already. Um, And there again, I was looking at an organization, the British Union of Fascists, uh, which had always been regarded as a a very masculine, male-dominated movement. And as I started to excavate and do the research, um, I I realized that actually the movement... Uh, relied a great deal on female support. 25% uh, of the membership of the movement was female. There were a number of female leaders, including uh, the first fascist organization in Britain was founded by a woman, uh, Rotha Lynn Tornorman. Um, So, again, I started to, you know, I I tried to work against the grain uh, in political history, to reinsert or to resituate women uh, in in a very uh, uh, male-rendered narrative of political development. So, I came across this book called Guilty Women um, near the end of my research, actually, after I'd written that first book. Uh, but I was still interested in, about in, in the relationship between uh, women and right wing politics, uh, women and extremism. Rather than women within kind of the democratic fold, um, so I came across this text from 1941 called "Guilty Women," written by a, a journalist, a sensationalist journalist called Richard Baxter, which made all these allegations about women's role um, in the in, in the promulgation and and in the dissemination of the policy of appeasement. He assumed uh, and he, he he gave a very very kind of I um, uh, say sensational. Um, uh, um, story about how women had worked behind the scenes in anglo-german relations um, uh, um at the top levels of government um how they had been involved in in political and sexual intrigue to put their point across and to try to um keep britain out of the war and to uh, also he had kind of fantasies of, of various spy rings that the nazis had had um, had uh, set up in britain and so forth so clearly this was a fully factual account, but nonetheless it was probably asking some important questions or 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 making you know there's no smoke without fire i suppose is is what I wanted to to discover so I wanted to blow out blow the embers a little bit and to see what I could find in the ashes
0: as you describe women have this very significant role in public policy formulation in the 1930s. And yet you begin your book by explaining how it was that women were written out of this history of appeasement that goes all the way back to the precursor to Baxter's book, which was this very famous book uh, called Guilty Men, uh, written by these three journalists who published under the pseudonym Cato, and and, and how they uh, began establishing the the narrative of appeasement that, that has, has, uh, you know, shaped so much of the debate today and, and how in, in effect the, the existence of Baxter's book seems to demonstrate how, you know, even then there was this sense of you're missing this part of the story. How was it that, that women were left out even after Baxter's book came out?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a really good point. So of course, Cato's, um, you know, famous guilty men, which is the cornerstone of uh, appeasement historiography, which sets out this, account of of who is responsible for Britain going to war um, underprepared or unprepared uh, that was very much again a story about men It had a very gendered aspect in that there was you know all these kind of uh, villains or or kind of hapless figures who had led Britain uh, down this this, this path. Um, are often represented in kind of very feminized language and and they are kind of antiheroes. So obviously you can see how they will be feminized as part of that process. But again, there are no actual women in guilty men. Uh, There is no discussion of of women in, in really any regard here. Um so you know it assumes that Britain was a country led by, ruled by, um, and dominated by men. And that's not the case, because there's another important story here, and that of course is the um is is, is what I, I'm trying to show um in, in the book, is that of course Britain um, changes very much uh, after 1918 um, because of, of suffrage, because of universal suffrage and, of course, women's suffrage. Uh, and women become an integral part of the democratic and the electoral process. Um, and they, and they of course, become MPs for the first time as well. Not in great numbers. Between the wars, only 36 women um, managed to, to be elected to Parliament in Britain. But nonetheless, they now have a real presence. Um, And for political parties and politicians, they're a target audience um, for their vote. Um, So women are clearly a a big, big part of this story. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is the actual feminist movement and how the feminist movement uh, reforms and reconstitutes itself after the vote is won. So in one sense, the vote has been won. The suffrage movement has kind of lost its cause. So what does it do? It doesn't just completely disappear and fritter away. What happens is that women redirect their energies into allied or closely related campaigns. And one particular campaign that that really kind of captures the imagination of many women who had been suffragists, some of them suffragettes, but mainly suffragists, actually, was the peace campaign and the, the, the move into international politics and the feminization of international politics, especially after the First World War. And again, the First World War was seen as a man-made war, a man-made disaster. And what was necessary, therefore, was a woman-made peace. So women are immediately embedding themselves um, in discussion about, as you say, public policy, about foreign policy, about diplomacy. Um, And women need to be part of this new democratized diplomacy, trying to avoid the mistakes of the pre uh, 1914 situation of um, secretive diplomacy and, and foreign relations trying to open things up trying to make things more transparent trying to make the whole um, way that foreign policy is conducted much more democratic and inclusive
0: I was thinking also about another aspect of it which is this uh, change in the uh, in the political discourse that has been created by the war in another respect which is you have on the one hand this reduction in the number of men and then you have these women as these survivors in the sense that they have lost all these men in their lives and in a sense they have to step up both because to help fill some of the space that's been created and also because they are very much the, the the ones who've suffered this great loss and and this gives them a position and, and, and an issue that, about which they they've been affected very deeply.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. And that certainly plays in uh, to, to the to the story here. Um, and and that, that, you know, there's a lot of cases where women see themselves um, as being substitutes for their the, 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 the men who have been lost in the war. Um, uh, a number of candidates, women candidates in the first uh, uh, post-war election, where women not only could vote but now could also stand uh, for for parliament. Um, a number of women candidates talked about themselves as substitutes for their dead brother or husband. Um, so that that was interesting too, and it, it it's exactly what you're saying. So I think that is is important uh, and women's uh, kind of moral authority gains a, a lot more importance um, because of their experience of war and their experience of loss. Um, and again it, it's this idea that you know man-made politics has led to this destruction and and, and 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 the horror of war and modern warfare. So what we need is is a, a women's peace.
0: And yet as you explain in uh, considerable detail that does not necessarily mean that they are all on the same side of these issues in the 1930s. In fact, they, they're they divided in, in terms of how they think Britain should respond to the rise of Adolf Hitler. And you explain both sides of it and you cite a number of prominent women who were participating in these debates on both sides and explain where they were coming from and, and why they adopted the positions
1: that they did. Exactly. And that's why it's really important even when we talk about gender, to avoid essentializing, and I do uh, try to go out of my way to avoid that, I record how journalists, politicians, women themselves essentialized their 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 sex sex roles um, and made assumptions about women's. Um, uh, attitudes uh, and their uh, attitudes to war and peace. Um, But the story is much, much more nuanced, much more textured than that, as as you rightly say. Uh, And there's just as many splits and fissures within the female community, if you like, as there are among men. But what is unique and what is different and what I've tried to show is that what happens immediately after the First World War and what plays very strongly still um, to this day, and certainly plays uh, uh, very powerfully in the appeasement debate, is the assumption that women are homogenous, that there is a women's vote, that there is a women's peace block. Now, that's essential here, the idea that women will always invariably vote for peace. Um, so that that is an incredibly powerful construct um, in how the appeasement debate is conducted at domestic level. So I think that's important. But yes, as you say, and as I've gone, gone to pains to show in the book, there, is an, uh, there are as many different positions among women as there are among men. Now, don't forget, women have a very unique and, and, uh, and gendered relationship to fascism and to anti-fascism. Uh, and there is a chapter in the book which focuses on women's war on fascism. Of course, women felt themselves uh, especially victimized Um, by by the the fascist regime regime in Italy and more so by the Nazi regime in Germany. Um, They were being targeted. They were being persecuted. uh, They uh, they, they saw the clock being turned back on their emancipation and their rights. Uh, And this worried, uh, very understandably, women across Europe and across the West uh, and British women were at the forefront uh, in trying to kind of develop a feminist anti-fascism, trying to develop the political tools The cultural tools and in cultural modes, in in novels, in in all kinds of texts, in artwork of of fighting, um, you know, the the, the, what, what Virginia Woolf would would call kind of this this fascist patriarchy.
0: Now, were those women predominantly on the political left or were some of them also among the ranks of the conservatives in British politics during this time?
1: And that's why the story is so fascinating, because there, is, there are so many different variables here and so many different combinations. So, yes, generally, the anti appeasement position was more um, the position taken by people on the left or within the Liberal Party. Although in both cases, there were a lot of kind of complicated um, uh, combinations there. Um, there was, you know, the the, the very uh, strong strain of, of anti of anti-war uh, sentiment and anti-war activism and pacifism uh, uh, were you know, extremely uh, important in, in, on the left too. Um, but there are a number of figures on the right. As you say, this gives us an opportunity to talk about a figure like the Duchess of Athol, um, who was a conservative from the right of the party um she had been very much uh, an ally with uh, Winston Churchill when he was fighting against um you know moves towards uh, Indian independence and the India Act uh she was uh, you know a, a staunch staunch anti-communist but when when it comes to to fascism and the and the specter of nazism she becomes the most redoubtable um anti uh, chamberlainite and anti appeaser um, and she actually stakes and loses in the end her political career on that whole question, on, on the question of of, of Munich um, and, and, and appeasement. Um, there are a number of by-elections after uh, the Munich uh, conference of September uh, 38. So uh, in, November, in, in, in October, November and December uh, 1938, there's a, a slew of by-elections, which are each seen as a, a mini-referendum or as a general election in miniature uh, on on the question of foreign policy um and all of the by elections other than atolls are, are come about for you know for, through natural causes the death of a of an mp or or a resignation something like that however she um she steps down from her seat to to fight a by election on this question um and she you know she comes out as a a very high profile national figure and as an anti-Chamberlainite and sort of says, OK, well, you know, the Chamberlain is wrong here um, and I'm going to stake my my career on it. And, and sadly, she loses that by election uh, in December 1938 and, and kind of goes down um, as as this. And that that is going to be the end of her parliamentary career, although she carries on uh, with various campaigns um, well into the postwar period, too. So there is a really good example how um, there are many conservative women. Um, uh, many women, a couple of women amongst the what I call the uh, women um, who um, I, I don't follow the kind of stereotypical uh, path uh, of Chamberlain adulation.
0: And you also have this coterie of women, as you were explaining, who are anti-fascist people, women like Monica Watley, who were very much at the forefront of this engagement with fascism uh, based in part upon their personal experiences, based in part upon their uh, you know the the fact that so many of these anti-war groups had an international complexion, so they ex, uh, experienced secondhand the rise of fascism and its consequences. And for them, it was not so much about the threat of Germany and war to Britain, but the threat that fascism was posing to civilization in Europe, as they saw it.
1: Yes, and uh, you know that that's that's so true. And and you know in the in the th- in the twenties and certainly in the thirties, um, you know they, the, the general feeling was that democracy couldn't withhold, um, the threat being posed by the dictatorships. Uh, and women especially felt themselves, um, as I say, personally threatened. Uh, and many had had experiences. I mean, would, I talk a lot about various encounters. So you know, we we have women are you know increasingly able to. To, to travel uh, and that travel is 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 often uh, very political uh, and explicitly political, um, uh, and they're you know they're involved in informal diplomacy and kind of soft power, uh, and they're also involved more and more with the League of Nations. Um, so there is this on the formal level, women are are internationalizing, um, and are you know experiencing uh, countries and cultures well beyond their own borders. Um, now this then kind of transmutes into um, what I call the fascist encounter, because it's on many of these trips, whether they be for, you know, leisure or for politics, that, that British women who are connected, some connect, are well-connected, some have political uh, influence, but some don't. But then nonetheless, they, they, they have this kind of visceral encounter, first encounter often with fascism, and that can kickstart um, a, a career or a campaign or a commitment to anti-fascism.
0: Yet the heart of your book is, uh, when I read it, was, was about this group of women who were very much supporters of appeasement, who uh, for a variety of reasons, be it their own uh, conclusions from their uh, separate encounters with, with fascism or from their uh, prior positions or simply from as the issue rose up, and they reacted to it in the way so many people did. Came out as supporters of appeasement, and you feature a lot of them in the book. And and this allows you to describe in uh, some detail the very uh, individual paths that they take, and the very and, and the unique roles that each one of them plays in this debate. Everyone from uh, Neville Chamberlain's wife Anne to his uh, sisters to uh, Nancy Astor, Diana Cooper, Lady Londoning, and so forth.
1: Yes, yeah, so there are a number of women who you've mentioned who are all you know within the circle of power, who are in, within easy reach of power but don't necessarily have formal power themselves. Nancy Astor, of course, is the exception there because she was the first woman to take her seat in parliament. Uh, she is a uh, you know she is, is is an MP throughout this period, um, and she is a you know very high profile figure, not always for the right reasons. Um, she's quite scandalous, and she has a kind of biting sense of humor, and she often kind of uh, makes her distinguishes distinguishes herself in Parliament for being um, undistinguished. Um, but in uh, any let's case-
0: not forget, she's also an American, so there's, there's that strike against her too.
1: Others <laughs> find that particularly um, irrelevant. Uh, she is an American; that does count against her very much, and that's um, that that. That, that builds up her her reputation and, and kind of public distrust or mistrust of her, um, which then plays into the whole kind of Cliveden set um, uh, conspiracy or the Cliveden set myth. Um, it is largely a myth in that there was no such kind of deliberate set or deliberate kind of cabal uh, that was seeking to, you know, to 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 to. Um, to to make terms um, uh, between uh, Britain and Germany. But in a a, a looser sense, there was definitely um, a, a set of, a group of people who were working Towards those ends, and were very happy, and had no qualms about you know socializing with and sleeping with and entertaining the von riebentrops and 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 whoever else came to town and was ready to do business. Um, so that that is true, and, and Astor was quite prominent there. But then again, more complex than you would think. The Cliveden set, um, you know, para the Cliveden set myth is is very very you know um, flat and one sided because she was also um, as a, she was also a self identified feminist. Uh, Aster. Uh, she came with a lot of prejudices, but where she really saw her unique contribution to be was as the first woman MP. Uh, and she did, did feel, even though she was a, a Tory, she felt that she was there in Parliament to represent women and not just certainly not just conservative women. So this is important. And in that capacity, she's also very um, much inclined towards pacifism and towards peace movements. So her pro-appeasement stance has a lot to do with that and not just kind of a, a blatant and, and, and blind pro-Nazis. Um, but she changes very quickly, too. So by 1938, she's going out of her way to disassociate herself, uh, to kind of wash the stain of the Cliveden set charge off her hands. Uh, and, you know, she talks to any newspaper that will listen to her about how this Cliveden set, um, you know, story is, is complete bunk and um, and, and a, a real affront to, to her reputation. So she goes out of her way to do that. And ultimately, OK, the war's already started. She will get behind Churchill, who was, of course, for many years standing her great rival and and, 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 and you know, biting interlocutor in Parliament and outside.
0: And as you point out, though, she tended to be the exception. And more often than not, the women who had influence were people who were uh, more indirectly connected to politics. I was especially fascinated by your examination of Anne Chamberlain because she's a figure who doesn't receive as much attention even within the narrative of her husband's political career. And yet, as you described, she is a very noteworthy figure in these these political uh, discussions of the 1930s, albeit one that's much more difficult for us to capture today.
1: I mean, I think, you know, we've become very accustomed to looking much more deeply at, you know, politicians' personal lives and how their uh, personal and public lives interact and mirror each other. Uh, that wasn't as common in the way that we do it today um, uh, then. However, there, you know, she did get quite a lot of attention in press. She was watched very carefully. She was filmed. Um, she, she was photographed. And a lot of that watching took place during the Munich crisis itself. Uh, and she was definitely, you know, the, the press was looking to her and women of the country, or at least that's how the press represented it, were looking to her how to behave, how to react, how to respond, how to emote, um, how to feel about this whole uh, appeasement uh, question, about this whole kind of, uh, uh, you know, the whole Sudeten crisis. Um, and so, you know, during the crisis, she is, um, you know, it's reported that she's she visits, you know, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, that she goes to West West. Minster Abbey to pray on a regular basis, that she takes walks as she takes walks in St. James's Park. Men, but mainly women, run to her, cheering her, seeking some kind of, you know, some kind of, of support and, and, and confirmation of their of their fears and anxieties and and then eventually their relief from her and from her responses. There's lots of talk about her tears. Um, and you know the, this is she is allowed as a woman she has the permission the social and cultural permission um, to show some kind of emotion whereas her husband and the male figures um, in, in the piece are, are, are will be criticized or, or, or undermined if they are to show their emotions and uh, and, and, and you know if their, their response is seen as as too feminine too weak soft so that's important. the other thing is though um, it's about sources um the Chamberlains don't have not left traces uh, in the way other uh you know leading political figures have, so Neville Chamberlain never kept a diary. What he did do however um was uh write on almost a weekly basis to his two unmarried sisters at that time they would have been called spinsters, Ida and Hilda um and these are called the diary letters. Uh, because they do kind of function as a diary, they give us as much insight as we have into his his personal feelings, into his intimate responses, into how he was, you know, his psychological um, uh, frame of mind uh, at you know throughout his political career. But what's most interesting to us and and for this book is you know how what insight we get into his uh, interior um, during the Munich crisis in the in the weeks before and after. And yet, as
0: There's another aspect to these letters, of course, and that is the response from his sisters, because it's clear from them that, you know, he is not just dispensing letters, he's receiving letters from them. And yet, so he's getting this advice. And unfortunately, whereas we've given attention to the letters, uh, the letters were uh, edited and published uh, a couple decades ago, we, we, we don't really have their response as prominent. And yet, obviously, that's another channel by which you're seeing women having this voice in this appeasement debate.
1: Yes, that's right. And, you know, that, again, thinking historiographically, that's one of the ways in which women have been written out of the story. So um, uh, there th- these letters have been uh, edited and published, uh, but all we have is his letters, not the responses, not not the you know, not the correspondence. Um, so uh, that that's, you know, I think particularly telling uh, that, you know, uh, most historians of this, of you know, in this field have assumed that women, maybe they're sounding boards, but that's it. That's all that we that's the only role that they play here. They don't interact. Uh, they don't actually influence him. He influences them. He provides, um, you know, insight into his his frame of mind. And that's all we need to know. But of course, Hilda and Ida were were formidable political figures in their own right at the local level. Um, as the kind of the 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 champions and the the preservers of the family heritage, of course, uh, you know, this is the, the second generation of of of. Imminent uh, uh, Chamberlain Chamberlains, um, you know they they are very much involved with their brothers Austin, who's already passed away by now, and and Chamberlain with preserving that family legacy and and perpetuating it. Um, of course, you know Neville Chamberlain has achieved the high office that his father had hoped to achieve but had never achieved, and that his brother. Uh, had been uh, marked to achieve and then, of course, hadn't either. So, you know, that the importance of the family legacy and the way that brother and sisters um, are interacting um, in, in 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 kind of constructing that uh, is, is really key. Now, the letters do exist. And if you go to the Chamberlain Archive uh, at the University of Birmingham, you can also look at the letters from his sisters. So it's not that they have been completely, um, you know, um, They haven't disappeared from the face of the earth. Uh, It's just about how, what historians think is valuable or valid. um, And that, uh, again, you know, they've perpetuated this idea that um, the history of appeasement is the history of of men and guilty men. We've been
0: focusing primarily upon the role that some of these very uh, prominent and politically active women Uh, oftentimes uh, socially as well as politically prominent have been playing these appeasement debates. And yet, as you described, that's only part of the story because, and you've already alluded to this to some degree, you also have the broader uh, engagement of women as part of the electorate. And by the time it gets to the 1930s, women have had the vote now for uh, nearly two decades and at, at this point they the parties have evolved uh you know methods of outreach and, and they're beginning to engage women and respond to them. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that role that, that women generally played in politics in the nineteen thirties and uh particularly how with the role that they played within the politics of the Conservative Party.
1: Yes, well thank you. That is a you know really a key aspect here um to understanding how women are, are are made to engage or kind of made to, to step aside when it comes to foreign policy. Because yes, in, in 1918, women get the vote. Um, uh, women are, are, are able to, you know, uh, six months later legislation is passed that allows women to, to stand for parliament. Um, most crucially though, all the political parties reform and modernize in 1918 as, uh, as a, as an understandable response. And, uh, you know, it, to to the new legislation and to this expanded uh, electorate, um, so the conservative party modernizes. Um, it creates a, a women's uh, you know a conservative women's association, um, and uh, which had already existed in a different forms when women didn't have the vote. So, you know, women are already politicized and mobilized by the conservative party and by the labor and, and liberal party for that matter before they're actually citizens, which is a little bit ironic, uh, uh, to, but 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 true. But certainly when they have the vote, uh, much effort is is made to um, integrate them not only within the electorate, but within the party system uh, and to mobilize them for party work on various levels, electoral work, social uh, work, um, electioneering. Um, uh, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, cohesion trying to get the, uh, the party to think as one, um, and to, to, you know, create this kind of conservative party culture. So women are really important, um, in, in those respects. Uh, and many women come into the party, um, at local level and work their way up to, um, uh, a regional or national level, um, through, through that route. So, um, The Conservative Party is very good at um, responding to what they perceive to be women's needs, um, but they represent women in very different ways than the feminist movement does, for instance. So you don't have Conservatives talking about women as feminists. You don't have Conservative women talking about themselves as feminists, which is why Nancy Astor is such an interesting kind of a, a special case here. But what Conservative women do How they do feel about themselves, what their political identity is based on is their um, uh, citizenship, is their is their their sense of service. So they talk a lot more about women's duties than their rights, Um, women's duties within the home, within the family and within the nation. Um, So one of the ways in which they. Um, you know, kind of carve out this role for themselves um, is by you know preserving the peace as well. So again, that will play in uh, to the appeasement debate. So what I wanted to do in the book wasn't just look at you know the leading figures and the kind of the you know the the cloak and dagger uh, um, uh, stories about kind of soft soft power and, and soft diplomacy. I wanted to think about how women, you know, the woman on the street. Of course, there's a lot of talk about the man on the street, but what about the woman on the street? What she or she or all of all of her um, or many of her, what they what they thought, how they responded to appeasement, um, what they thought and how they felt to the coming of war, um, which is really what what what's going on here. I mean, most women, as as sources like mass observation um, reveal for us, most women were not particularly politically educated. Not all men were either for that matter. Um, And most women feel disengaged uninformed, sometimes uninterested, even apathetic when it comes to uh, foreign policy. There are many who are engaged, and I've looked at at those different cohorts. But I think the vast majority of women do feel that they don't have a, a, a direct role to play. So they feel on the one hand, disenfranchised from these fundamental decisions about their lives, about whether their nation will go to war, whether their husbands and sons are going to be exposed uh, and, and placed in, in danger, whether they will be placed in danger. Of course, this is not as the Second World War approaches. No one's expecting a war to be fought in a faraway country of which we know nothing. They're expecting a war that will be fought over their heads, quite literally and on their heads, aerial warfare, bombing, gas masks, and so forth. So there's nobody who's not um, uh, involved in this, In this, uh, was not implicated in this new type of warfare. Um, so women, you know, have specific fears that are, you know, gendered as, as feminine in many ways. Um, and the way that we can come to terms with that is by looking at sources that historians of appeasement won't normally have looked at, such as, as I said, mass observation, opinion polls, diaries, Confessional sources and one source that really stuck uh, uh, stuck out for me and that I felt was was you know really under explored was the letters that Chamberlain received um, from men but also and 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 more proportionally more from women um, during the the crisis
0: and that's where you get into this very interesting uh, you know analysis in your book where you're looking at both the Uh, representation of public opinion among women and the, and the effort to try to understand what, you know, what women actually did feel uh, to the degree you can, you know, assume that the, uh, uh, you know, opinions of a group, but also how women served a role in the discourse as sort of representational. And this is where you get into the idea of, you know, the, the, you know, the Mrs. Miniver, the, uh, you know, the idea of the mothers seeing their, uh, you know, who might see their sons off to yet another war and so forth, and and how that, you ends up playing a role itself. Although, unlike in times past, it's now not just something that's, you know, being directed towards men primarily, but now also it's, you know, that women, now that women have the vote, they play as, you know, they they themselves uh, can be appealed to in this way, uh, maybe, in a way that we would regard as patronizing today, but uh, nonetheless is, you know, itself significant in terms of shaping that debate that was taking place over the course of the late 1930s.
1: So, yes, that's right. So modern warfare has this leveling effect when it comes to gender and when it comes to everything else for that matter. Uh, It has a leveling effect, um, you know, on in class terms and in ethnic and and, uh, other terms as well. Um, you know, if, if, a, if the bombs fall, no one is going to be spared. So it's, it's as simple as that on, on, on one level. And, of course, that is largely what happens. Of course, the gas war that everyone, fe- everyone feared um, um, and, you know, and of course, the, the set pieces of the Munich crisis are, are the, you know, is the distribution of gas masks, especially on that Sunday uh, in late September, which came to be called Gas Mask Sunday when everyone went to, to pick up their gas masks um so you know everyone is kind of aware that this war is 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 general is universal is going to leave them uh, as vul- you know as one as vulnerable as another of course another important aspect of the women's history of of the the, the Munich crisis is the evacuation of children but um i won't probably go into that too much right now but yes so there there are some experiences which are 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 universal which transcend gender lines, uh, and then there are some which are more specific to, to women's, you know, more traditional or biological roles. So mothers will feel slightly differently to things than, 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 than fathers. But fathers are also, of course, worried for their offspring, uh, and, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, testimony in, in mass observation sources, et cetera, of, 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 of men being, you know, very, very fearful of their own death or the death of their loved ones. I mean, that's just a, you know, just the most human concern um, Concern that we can imagine, um, but again, one of the ways that we can kind of how do we get insight into this? How do we understand how people really felt or what they thought? And again, one source that I I, I tried to you know really um, use for this purposes were the letters that Chamberlain received um, from from around the world, but you know uh, of course the majority of them were from from um, his own country men and country women, um, and he received between twenty and forty thousand letters of gratitude and praise in the weeks um, of, of the crisis. Um, and he relied on these letters in ways that we, we, I think, has been have been really overlooked by other historians. I mean, it really built his kind of sense of self, his, his sense of purpose um, by receiving those letters. Now, there's that most famous um, passage from the speech that he, he gives on the BBC just before, Um, the the dramatic kind of turn of events where he's invited to Munich. And this is on the 27th of September, uh, 1938. And he says, as most people will remember, he says how horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. Now this is, you know, again, iconic kind of Chamberlain, myopia and isolationism. But what he says right before that in that same broadcast is that he's been, he's come around to this view, not necessarily because of his own feelings, not necessarily because of his own kind of reading of geopolitics, but because of the letters and the letters and the prayers for my success. As, as he says, that he has received. And as he says it himself, most of these letters have come from women, mothers or sisters of our countrymen. So two things to notice here. One is that women in large numbers are writing to Chamberlain to try in any way they can to get their feelings across. Tell them how, how, how deeply grateful they are, how much they don't want war. And the other aspect is that Chamberlain's listening. Um, he makes a commitment to reply to every single one of these letters uh, and that's something that the newspapers take you know pick up on a, a lot in fact I know that he actually employs a, um, a number of extra secretaries at this time to to fulfill that promise and even a, a special printing press uh, is made for him to turn out these letters of reply all right so he's he really this is his This is how he's engaging with public opinion, that he has the public, the people and the women, especially on his side. That is really essential for how he sees himself um, and his conduct in 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 these most tense international relations.
0: I I have to say, I I love the label that you give them in the book, the the Munich mums, uh, because it, it does seem to. you know, convey both their role, but also it's just the degree to which Chamberlain has sort of adopted them and used them as uh, perhaps a shield uh, or perhaps even in in a way a sword uh, to to say, you know, this is what it's about, that we're doing this as a a means of reaching out to them, especially considering that what Munich was in in 1938 was, uh, and this is, of course, you know, how it comes to be uh, portrayed, uh in, in by by Winston Churchill and others, as you know caving to dictators, which is sort of the 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 image of Munich that we have even to this day but chamberlain's saying i i 'm doing this for them, and i 'm doing this so that you know because th- this is what the people want
1: yeah, and that 's very much the binary here that 's the emotional binary between relief and shame um and and you know Chamberlain doesn 't feel that shame for for many months to come, but immediately. Lots of people are feeling that shame, that biting, um, you know, really, really kind of stinging shame. But even those who are anti-appeasement, who are anti-Chamberlain, who feel that, you know, Britain has definitely, you know, uh, uh, made made it an absolute fool of itself um, in in caving. um, Even those people um, like the Duff Coopers, the Diana Coopers, um, uh, 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 you know, even, you know, figures like uh, nobody can help but all not feel relief I, I i you know i've been rereading um uh virginia wolf's diaries now she wasn't a staunch anti-appeaser she was much more of a from you know following kind of her path of pacifist path um although her husband leonard was what wolf was was much more of a, a staunch anti-appeaser but still both i've just been looking at his autobiography and and, and rereading her her diaries and they both feel immense relief Uh, those last days of September and those first days of October. And, you know, they admit to it. But that militates against this shame. You know, people are really stuck in a quandary between a rock and a hard place, um, morally and emotionally, uh, because, you know, nobody wants war, right? Um, Nobody will ever claim that they want war. Churchill doesn't talk about the the need to go to war. That's not what he is, you know, that's not how he is opposing uh, the appeasers. Um, Nobody talks, you know, about war. That's why, going back to the Duchess of uh, awful for a second um she is portrayed as a warmonger and that's enough to sink her in her election bid because no one wants to hear the word war
0: and Yet, as you explain, this becomes part of the criticism, sort of like the 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 germ of criticism that develops and uh it, you know grows after the war breaks out in September of nineteen thirty nine that you have this growing criticism of the role of women in appeasement. And, and more broadly, you know, the, the, you know, the, a lot of the criticism of appeasement more generally takes on this gendered uh, language of representation of, 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 you know, weakness caving, whereas, you know, the response should have been to stand strong and be more, if you will, manly.
1: Yes, I- indeed. And I mean, that's, it's unfortunate, but inevitable um, that, you know, you'll, you'll you, that you have this kind of feminization uh, of, of, Kind of peace work and the idea of peace and appeasement. I mean, of course, the term appeasement itself is very much in transition too. And um, when you know Chamberlain talks constantly about you know a European appeasement, it's not a bad word yet. Um, and then when it as it becomes a bad word, it also becomes feminized, um, which is you know uh, an interesting comment on 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 how we uh, how how we conceptualize and how we uh, how we how we kind of uh, as you know how we damn a policy.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working
1: on now. Thank you. Um, and thanks for all the, the great questions oh. as well. So now, yeah, I'm, I'm moving on, um, in a connected fashion from, from guilty women. Um, and I really became fascinated by the emotional responses. you might've gathered by, uh, with, with some of my comments, um, um, Uh, And what I thought might be a really uh, interesting prism through which to understand emotional response through the study of 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 personal crisis and the relationship between personal crisis and national crisis. And I'm going to be looking specifically at suicide and a perceived or apparent suicide epidemic. Which accompanies the Munich crisis and the, the the months leading up to to the outbreak of war. So I see suicide very much kind of as a chance to provide some kind of political autopsy of the uh, of the prelude to war. Uh, in that those who you know couldn't cope uh, with the next war, um, uh, you know, made this fateful and final decision. And. Not only interested in in how lives were affected in that way, but how, again, those kind of um, um, fateful choices were narrated by politicians, by coroners, by psychologists and psychiatrists. uh, And how, you know, there was this this real understanding that the, the war that was about to be fought was of a different, very different kind than wars of the past. Um, and there was a, a greater recognition of the psychological dimension, um, and again, the breaking down actually, I think, of gender norms. It was there was a lot more compassion towards those um, who who weren't able to, you know, bring themselves to fight. Um, the role of the conscientious objector changes significantly between the first and the second world war, and also the suicides. So, male suicides, men who have you know, who have killed, uh, killed themselves because they don't want to fight in another war. They're not usually dealt with in the sources I've seen so far. They're not dealt with um, in a, you know, in in a judgmental way. They're dealt with with a lot of compassion and empathy and understanding that, you know what, that's, you know, that makes perfect sense. And we can't fight, you know, we can't we can't force people um, to 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 brutalize, to become brutalized, to become, uh, you know, inhuman. Um, and, and, and and kind of survive uh, under this, you know, under these, in these terrible times.
0: Well, that sounds like it's going to be a fascinating book, and I do very much look forward to reading it. Julie, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today, and I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: It's a pleasure, and thanks again for the great questions. Uh-